Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I'm so glad to be back in uh, uh, this book of Revelation. Uh, today we're going to enter chapter 2. We have uh, finally finished chapter 1. It didn't take that long, a few weeks. And then we're going to go all the way through through chapter 22 uh, in the coming weeks and months ahead. But for today, we're going to uh, get into chapter 2 and it's verses 1 through 7. And uh, for the context of this, so that you can have this before you, I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. Uh, as you know, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And uh, this is a, a very interesting section. This would be called the second section of the book. And I'll explain what that is in just a minute. But I want to read to you the passage of Scripture first, uh, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. The word of God reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. So this is that one speaking. And here's what he says beginning in verse 2. I know your deeds, your toil, perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have seven letters written to seven churches. They are actually inside this one great book called the book of Revelation. They are part of it. So starting in chapter 2 and running through the end of the next chapter, chapter 3, there are seven letters. These are seven churches that these letters are written to. And if you go through or go to chapter 1, verse 11, they're listed for you. The seven churches are actually listed for you, and then we'll see them again in the progressive way in which we're going to approach them. But they're listed for you in 111, and they are, and by name, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, those are all cities in Asia Minor. Uh, in case you don't know what Asia Minor is, that would be what we would call Turkey today, modern Turkey. And they're cities in Asia Minor. In fact, in that order, they are listed they are listed that way because it is said that these are a postal route that you would go through the whole country stopping at regional postal centers. And so John, you remember, is on the island of Patmos, chapter 1, verse 9. He's on that island of Patmos because of his testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that proved to be a crime. Remember, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And it is a tumultuous time. There is a lot of suffering and punishment going on. And here, uh, here he is there on the island of Patmos for the crime now of preaching the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he's been sent there 
in a prison colony in his 90s. And it is believed that he was there literally to just break rocks. And when he gets there, the Lord gives to him the amazing vision in this book. In fact, if we were to have a chance to go back, we could take a look at that vision in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. But in that vision, or at the end of that vision, it says he saw, uh, and when he saw him, after he had turned and saw the one who was speaking to him, he fell as a dead man. And that uh, living one and uh, the one who is speaking to him says to him, Write therefore the things you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which must take place. Now this is the three-part part, a three-part uh, layout of the book of Revelation. And as I said, we're in the second part. The first part being is what we finished last week when he says, Write therefore the things you have seen. Well, he did that in chapter 1. Now we're told that he says after that he is to write the things uh, which are, and that is what we're going to take a look at. It is basically the church age, or the seven churches of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and we're going to see how that relates. And then after that, beginning in chapter 4 and going through the end of the book, chapter 22, uh, he is told to write the things which shall take place after these things. So the things that he's writing is this that's after the church age, that being chapters 4 through 22. And we'll take a look at those. I, I can't wait to get there, uh, but I have to wait because I'm not there yet. But John is there, and he's had this opening vision, and he uh, he's, sees the, the lampstand and representing of the, the seven churches who have uh, who he is writing to. And so we look at these seven letters from the Lord who is described as in the vision like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. And we took a look at that in the voice that is speaking to him. And that is uh, symbolic of just simply saying this voice is a person and this person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his hand he holds these seven ministers or seven stars. And we believe these to be seven pastors or heads of these churches. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword to defend his church, and his face is like the sun shining in its strength. And so we have here the glorious picture of Christ, and it is so overwhelming that he falls like a dead man. And the Lord says, basically, get up and write. And then Asia Minor, I want you to remember, is, uh, is, a, is pagan. And there are, again, uh, islands in this area, and these, as you read through the seven letters, you realize that these people in these real seven churches uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem, they're suffering. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, he calls himself a fellow partaker in the tribulation. He's going through trouble. And so we, we look at these churches, and we have to remember they are kind of in a, uh, uh, a, a sequence to them as, as we look through them. But we'll see as we go, and keep in mind that these are real churches, historic churches in actual cities, and they were made up of actual believers. And, I, and the reason I'm even emphasizing that is so many say they're just picturesque of something else, and they're not real. But some of them are just uniquely good and, and sound and faithful, and there are exceptions. Most of them are a mixture of good and evil. And as we shall see as we go through, they move away from Ephesus, and they seem to go in a descending order. In other words, if you read uh, the one we're going to look at today, Ephesus, then you get to the last one, the last one is much, much worse uh, than the first one. So 
We read about the first one opening in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, to the angel or the messenger, the pastor uh, of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And so the first thing on this outline that I want to give you as we go through this, just a little way to kind of keep this information uh, uh, in an organized fashion. Number one is uh, the speaker. Who is the speaker here? And the speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the speaker. It is him speaking to the church at Ephesus. In the second letter, the one who speaks is referenced back to chapter 1, taken from that vision, he is referred to in chapter 2, verses 8 and following, as the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And then in chapter 3, the message to Sardis, the one who has the seven spirits. And so all these descriptions are going to play a part in these seven different letters to the seven churches. To the church in Laodicea, for example, in chapter 4, he says, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning. And so we can see that these designations are going to be used in these letters. But number one is the speaker, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to number two on the outline. And number two on the outline is the church at Ephesus. It is basically a spiritually strong church. The church at Ephesus is was well-founded, taught by the best possible leaders, the best possible preachers and teachers. In fact, if we had time to go back, we could look at these beginning in Acts chapter 18. But basically, Paul founded this church. And there may have been some other folks who got the church going, but Paul is the one who is credited for this. And then later in the 18th chapter, we learn another man came on the scene, and his name was Apollos. And Apollos plays a big role in the teaching of these people. So Paul trained and retained the pastors there. Acts chapter 20, they loved him so much they wept when he said he was leaving. Later, Timothy pastored the church at Ephesus. And so we can see they've had some good leadership there. Also, Aquila and Priscilla are there. And uh, so it, it really was a firmly founded on the third missionary journey of Paul. And I bring that up because we're going to see some things, and, and you know these to be true, but churches change. Um, you know, the, 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 the church can be very strong for years and years, and then all of a sudden it's, uh, it's just not the same anymore. It's got weak, or they stopped teaching the Word, or, or whatever uh, that we, we've seen. We've all seen this. So this, and I'm bringing it out, that this church is a strong church. Paul founded this church, and they have a lot going for themselves. In fact, if we had time to go back to Acts chapter 19, for example... Uh, he brings out all that uh, was 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 going on there in that church and just how strong they were and how they approved faithful and godly men and, and just did not tolerate evil or wicked spirits and, and the exorcisms that went on uh, for, uh, around the beginning of that church. Uh, for example, they were told the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, uh, was doing certain things. And uh, it's just an amazing beginning to a church when we look at Ephesus, and then we can find out just a bit about, which brings me to number three, the church is strong, but it's strong in the midst of a, of a, of a wicked city, basically. A little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where John lived, I think about 60 miles from where he was, actually on the Isle of Patmos. Apparently, John went there uh, after the fall of Jerusalem, which was, it would have been A.D. 70, 
And he's now in his 90s. So this is an old man. And he's the last apostle or the patriarch in the era of the church age. He is still living. All the other apostles have passed away or been persecuted. Now, this area, Ephesus, is known as the greatest city. In fact, there's a Latin phrase for it that was dominant even at that time. It was called the Light of Asia. And it was prominent for many reasons. It was a port city, uh, flow right on one of the largest rivers in the area. And it was placed. It was a place where many goods were brought, and from there went, or many were sent out. So they had good exporting and importing. Uh, there were four great highways that said led into Ephesus. In fact, in later times, martyrs were brought from Asia to be thrown to the lions in the arenas in Rome. And Ignatius called Ephesus the highway of the martyrs. They were brought through Ephesus to Rome, and it became a vanity fair of the ancient world. Uh, politically, it was a free city. Rome gave Ephesus the right of self-governing. No Roman troops were stationed there. It was basically independent and had a freedom. But the biggest event each year were the great games, or would, would be equivalent to our Olympic games. Uh, and, and Paul many times, in fact, he closes out 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verse 8, and he says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And perhaps he was rare referencing the, the games there, but he wanted to stay. Now, why did he want to stay? Well, why did he want to stay until Pentecost? Because that's the month of May the games took place, and the pilgrims of that entire ancient uh, Mediterranean world came to Ephesus. So it would have been a great opportunity for him to share Christ or share his testimony. And a great door would be open for the gospel at such a time like this. So likely he didn't get to remain because of the, the riot that started uh, shortly thereafter, according to Acts chapter 20. But from a religious standpoint, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis, or the great Diana, as, as it was called. Uh, sometimes Artemis was called Diana because of the characteristics of ancient paganism is that it lost its distinction between the genders, and Satan has a way of doing that, confusing the genders. That's not new. That's even happening today. But Diana, on the most part, was a sacred goddess of the civilized ancient Greco-Roman world, and the temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of that part of the world. The temple, uh, Artemis or Diana in Ephesus, it was made, in fact, you can read these things, and it's just, I'm, I'm actually reading right out of a dictionary, uh, it was made of glittering Persian marble. It was 425 feet long, uh, one and a half city blocks, 260 feet wide, columns stood 60 feet high, 130 different columns, 37 embellished with gold and jewels, and all of it was uh, was gifts of kings. The altar, beautiful beyond words, was uh, was carved by the Greek sculptures. Uh, it was a museum, and then the temple was a sanctuary for criminals, a sanctuary for criminals in the sense that criminals in that would find safety there, and, and which only led to uh, more sin in the city. But it was also known as the Bank of the Mediterranean. The wealthy kept their treasures, there in the shrine of the temple because it was sacred and kind of a strange thing to have a uh, the same kind of temple and a sanctuary for criminals and yet known as the largest sacred bank of the area. Anyway, it was big business uh, selling idols. That's what they did. They sold idols and they would put 
uh, idols on things. Uh, they were very first to, that we know of that would put idols on, on the front of a chariot or around people's necks. Historians say there were scores of eunuchs, thousands of priestesses, which were basically prostitutes, unnumbered herald singers, flutists, dancers. The worship was a kind of hysteria, uh, a drunkenness or sexual deviation, frenzies of shameless mutilations. You, you, you read this, you think, did I just say that was worship? That's what they called that was worship going on there. And so you, you find this city of Ephesus is huddled in the midst of this, of such sin, and you think, wow, this is, it had to have been an incredible group. Now, when the time of the, the writing of the, 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 the book known as the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, there were probably, it is said to have been anywhere from 12 to about 20 uh, believers in that church. And so... That would have been a miracle to have that many people coming out of such of a background. But you can understand that if the message of Jesus Christ is going forth from this uh, saint, these saints in Ephesus, uh, in spite of their environment, some of the greatest victories of grace that were ever won were won in that city of Ephesus. The church flourished, the church grew, the preaching by Paul had affected the worship and the the sale of idols, and in fact, their sales dropped off seriously. The little flock began to grow and grow and grow. And so that brings me to uh, not just looking at the speaker being Christ, the church in Ephesus, which is where this letter is being written, and the city uh, of, of Ephesus itself, but this is number four, and it is the, the commendation that you'll notice here. Look at verse two. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. You cannot endure evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. This church is to be commended. That's why I say this point, number four, is the commendation. It's what the writer or the speaker, Jesus, is commending them. He says, I know your deeds. I know this. I know your deeds, your labor. Uh, the labor, again, we saw earlier to the point of exhaustion exhaustion they worked this was not a lazy church this was a very aggressive church this was a church of people who toiled for the sake of the kingdom for the sake of the gospel they would not be considered in any way a passive church or lazy church they were giving everything they had uh, unlike a lot of churches that we know of today and you know of some uh, you know that there's a lot of people who go to church just to be a spectator. Well, this church would would be said to have a church full of people, none of which were spectators. Um, so this group in Ephesus, they were added uh, to this teaching here by uh, commending them. They were very active, not a church offering weekly solace or, or not a church known for boredom, not a church uh, offering a uh, a place just to come rest and listen, but they were a very uh, working church. Not only were they known for their deeds and their toil, uh, but their perseverance, their patience. It literally means, this word literally means to remain under. It means the same as the word abide. Uh, this is a uh, uh, an amazing thing to look at this church. Uh, and that's why I'm saying this this was a great church. This would be the kind of church, if you heard of, you would want to go and and join it. Uh, this is 
They have an invincible attitude that is not beaten down. It's not cast out. It endures. This would be what you would hear about from them. Is it a great church? Uh, they were persistent. They were staying with it. Their deeds were honorable. But verse 3, something else about them. They cannot tolerate evil men. They can't tolerate them. They're, they're intolerant of sin. They're sensitive to the person, to the uh, presence of evil. And so they, they can't tolerate that. They hated evildoers as God hates evildoers. They resent evil. They resent evildoers. Now that you might think all churches do. But no, they don't. Uh, this church hated all that was morally bad, all that was spiritually bad. And Paul, you can go back and read Paul to the Ephesians. He, he warned them, don't give place to the devil. And we can tell by reading this, they hadn't yet. Uh, uh, they were uh, probably even following the Lord's uh, guideline for uh, church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, they saw somebody sinning. They went to the person. They took two or three witnesses, and uh, they, they, they brought this to the church. And it says here, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. That is a church that is operating with discernment. And it doesn't say what the test was, but whatever that test was, it worked because they found them to be false. Uh, where does discernment come from? Well, it comes from a church that is, has a strong teaching of Bible truth, strong doctrinal church. The only way you can discern error is known by the truth. You don't have to have the truth in order to see the error. Uh, I mean, you have to have the truth in order to see the error. And a lot of churches just, I've even had people say to me, why does your church have to be so, so strong in doctrine or so strong in Bible? Well, this is the reason. It's a really amazing, remarkable church. Uh, they were not born this way. Uh, they were born and, and they began this way because Paul began to teach them. They were taught by Aquila and Priscilla and Paul. And they were taught by Apollos. They were taught by Timothy and Paul. Man, they were a well-taught church. Their theology was sound. And they could literally measure anyone against that. Anyone against the truth that they're hearing. They're hearing and they're being taught. So error could be exposed rather easily here. Uh, in, the, in the words of Peter, they gave a reason to any man who asked for the hope that was in them. And many evil people, as you can imagine, being a part of this kind of a city, would be coming into this church, wanting to know what's going on in here. And so that would be an open door for false teachers, uh, for Judaizers, uh, uh, who would be coming in to disrupt the harmony and the fellowship there. But they could not tolerate that. And then verse 6 says, in particular, they hated the Nicolaitans, a heretical group which God in Christ also hated, amazing group of hardworking, persevering, intolerant of sin, knowledgeable in theory of the truth, and they could not tolerate the Nicolaitans. Uh, now, and the, the key to this is found at this because in, in verse 3 it says, you have persevered and endured for my name's sake. I'm going to get back to the... Nicolaitans in just a minute. But they they persevere for, for Christ's sake, for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Uh, disappointments may have come, criticisms came, rebellion uh, sometimes would come, but they never grew weary, persevering for his name's sake. Now, back to, I want to go to verse 6, uh, just to comment on the the group of known as the Nicolaitans. Uh, the, who were they? They were... Uh, 
uh, they're they're a little hard to be certain about how to define them, but uh, they the the it probably came from uh, a kind of heresy that was developed from a man named Nicholas, perhaps followers of that man. We don't know who he is, but eventually it developed into some kind of a false cult or sect. Historians say it's characterized by extreme indulgence and filth of uncleanliness. In chapter two, we'll see it again linked to Baalism. Baalism, which was allowing the sense, the sensual or sex into the church, some kind of false cult, some kind of false, corrupt, heretical movement, and they hated it. Uh, they took the Lord's table, uh, I mean, they took the Lord's side on that, so they really viewed sin and the, the influx of these kinds of people the way Christ would do it. And so we, we, we find the commendation there is, is very real. But then in Number five from the outline, there is condemnation. Look at what verse five says. Remember, therefore, or verse four, I mean, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Wow, you think, wow, this is really a a pretty incredible thing here that this church, such a strong church, is being accused of forsaking their love. Uh, You've left your first love. Well, what does that mean? The flaming love that you had for Christ the day you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and that burning in your heart like it's described on the road of Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, that kind of a sense. You've lost that. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love uh, that, that you had. I remember that you were followers after me in the wilderness through a a land not sown, you would follow me anywhere. I remember, says God, the Lord of that. I remember that. Jeremiah goes on to say, you have long left that. And that's this is what Christ is saying. And that's the sequence here as we look at this. This first church, or seven churches, this first one, we're going to move from Ephesus to Laodicea, and we're going to get to a point eventually where the church, the Lord spits them out of his mouth, doctrinally, morally, pure, zealous, hard-working discipline. Uh, it, it, the churches are going to move, and you're going to see it in the sequence of getting a downward spiral, getting worse and worse and worse. And this one is such a great church, but yet at the same time, the, 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 uh, the command that he gives them, number six, uh, number five was the, uh, the uh, condemnation, or the, the, the condemnation, number six is the command he gives them. And look at what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That would be where they were not at this time. That's why it says they've lost their first love. The heart has grown cold. When that happens, you're in danger. How serious is Verse 5 says, remember from where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. What about that? Uh, Can you you take it or leave it concerning going to church? It's it's not really that important for you. I I can miss. I can stay home, I don't really have to go. Or What about reading God's Word? Are you hit and miss on reading God's Word? you believe it's the right thing? But I don't know, I don't really have to read it every day. But this is saying, man, go back and do that. I can remember things happening in, in church when I was younger uh, that we churches just don't do anymore. Like how many times have you heard churches emphasize the... Uh, 
memorizing of scripture or or how about this giving your testimony these sometimes the lord can use to ignite us back into that first love so you start by remembering going back remembering how it was when you were truly converted and by going back and doing what you did at the beginning and then number seven he gives us the consequence of it if you don't look at what he says in verse seven he who has, uh, I mean, number seven is, is the consequence of it. Uh, what is the, the, the consequence of not doing this? And you look at verse five, I mean, not seven. Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Can you imagine the pastor of this Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, read this letter to the church and the church hearing this, what kind of a response do you think they would have? Well, if this was led into your church, what kind of response would you have? You either repent, remember, and return to the things you did at first, or I'm going to destroy this church. I'm going to remove the lampstand. That's the end of the church. I'll terminate the church. I will end this church. Well, did this church in Ephesus, this letter going to them, remember they started some 40 years before this letter, with a letter by Paul, and then they've been, they've been real consistent going through. Now this letter's coming. And did they heed the warning here? And the answer is no. God did terminate that church. Yes, it happened that way. God did take it away. And it was, uh, it was a wonderful church. But today, right now today as I'm speaking, there is no church in Ephesus. There's not even a city there. The whole region... Is by a different name. So he gives a little bit of counsel, number eight on the outline. The counsel is in verse seven. He who, and it's in two parts. There's uh, number one, listen, and then you're going to give a promise. Listen, of, of the, the listen part of it first is he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Or another way of saying, are you listening? Everybody listen to what I just said. This transcends the church. The, the real church is in a real place at that time. It transcends uh, to all of you who hear this. Listen, this is, I think this is what he's saying to us. Man, don't let this happen to you. And it can happen to individual Christians. It can happen to churches. For all Christians, for all churches of all time, understand the danger of just becoming status quo or forgetting what Christ has actually done for you, or getting so focused on the work that you forget the worship, or even so involved in what you think is worship, and you forget the object of your worship. Man, and he gives a promise here. To him who overcomes, that term overcomes, comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Well, how does that fit in with this letter? How does it fit? Well, here's how it fits. Is he saying that there were people in that great church at Ephesus who actually failed to abide in Christ and they walked away? Could be. He's saying here, don't do that. Become a part of the church. Uh, be, be who you are as a faithful believer in Christ. And I think this is really what he's saying. There were people in the church that were not believers. They were close as far as being with people that were believers, but they just never did. This is what we could take a look at if we wanted to go back to 
the book of Hebrews. But remember this, a cold heart is a dangerous place to be. You are in danger of losing everything uh, with that cold heart. And there's a reason. Because he says this in verse 7, He who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, then to him who overcomes, that's the believer, the true believer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, we are going to make it. We are going to be there if we are truly born again. We are truly abiding in Christ. We're going to make it. It may not be easy, but we are going to make it. He's never going to let go of us. He's never going to forsake us. He is going to constantly be there. And the sanctifying process is always going to be at work. Through His Spirit that indwells us, Christ is to be praised and glory forever because of what He has started in us. As Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He will complete it. Now, let me ask you a question. Where is your faith today? How is your love for the Lord Jesus Christ this very moment? Can it even go cold? Can it go stale? Can it be uh, uh, apathy and, and complacency? Do the things you did at first. If you can't do those things, then there may be another problem. But I thank you today for listening to Hope for the Heart. And I pray that you might be encouraged by this letter. You'll keep reading, and then we'll take a look at the message to Smyrna uh, this next time, and we'll see some amazing things there. Thank you again.